All right, everybody, I need to ask, can everyone hear me if I speak like this as opposed to with the mic? Is this good? All right, I'm going to speak just like this. If you cannot hear me, let me know. I'll go back to the mic. I am in the process. I'm going to get us a, uh, a wireless microphone because facing facts, I have to walk around. And when I'm there with a microphone, it just, it's bad. I talk, I turn my head, it's a whole thing. Uh, I would like for you all, if you will, please turn to Acts chapter 8. We are continuing our study of the book of Acts. And as you are turning there, could I get anyone maybe to remind us, uh, what is the major thing that's happening in the book of Acts? What's the theme? What's going on? What's the book of Acts about? The church is being established. Yes. Well, yeah. Um, the star of the of the story, so to speak, the star of this account is the Holy Spirit. Uh, we see the apostles, different ones at different times, uh, being used by the Holy Spirit. But man, the Holy Spirit is there in every scene, every setting, actually getting the work done, which is a direct fulfillment of what we would probably call the theme verse of the book of Acts, which is Acts 1, verse 8. I'm so proud. Somebody actually remembered that. So Acts 1.8 is where Jesus says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, uh, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world. I might be paraphrasing that, forgive me. Um, But the idea here is that the Holy Spirit was going to show up in force. It wasn't that the Holy Spirit had never been around. We see him in Genesis 1. We see him throughout the Old Testament. But the Holy Spirit hadn't indwelled believers in mass before. And so notice what we see in Acts chapter 2 is that we see little tongues of fire over the believers to represent what used to be represented in the Old Testament where there was a pillar of fire or a pillar of cloud over the tent of meeting, and that's like the Holy Spirit is there. So now for the first time, the Holy Spirit is in all the believers. Uh, Now as we've seen, we've had a little bit of kind of annoyance persecution up to this point in Acts, right? We have where Peter and some other apostle, they're, they're spreading the gospel, they're preaching, and they're told not to. They do it anyway. They get arrested. They kind of get hassled. But that was about the worst of it until we get to Acts chapter 6 and 7. In Acts chapter 6, deacons are elected. And remember, the purpose of deacons was to do the service, the administrative things. And praise the Lord, these were godly men. But have you noticed something about that? Uh, Here in the book of Acts, we actually haven't seen a lot of description of the deacons doing what they were commissioned to do. The focus has been much more on the deacons preaching the gospel and getting martyred, right? So we see with Stephen, Stephen preaches the gospel. He is a deacon and he becomes the first martyr. Uh, Praise the Lord. Really interesting thing. Uh, So we're seeing a theme now. Persecution is like. Christians are being killed for their faith at this point. And that brings us to chapter 8. Now you all might remember one thing from the end of chapter 7. We see where Paul, now then Saul, is there at the death of the first martyr, Stephen. And we remember, this, this choked me up as I was writing the notes, it just hit me, that you have Saul standing there as a witness watching over the coats of the guys who were actually killing Stephen. He's looking on with hearty approval. And and Stephen, as he is dying, prays that God would give grace to those people who are persecuting him. And how profound. Like, he didn't even know it, but he's praying for Paul, the apostle, who wrote most of the New Testament, who won most of the known world to Christ. That's huge. 
Cool. And another way in which we see that it's, it's never in the book of Acts any human strength that's getting anything done. It's not even like trumped up faith. It's the Holy Spirit, right? The faith that we get is from God. When we do things in faith, it's him that's working through us. Like it's all the Holy Spirit through and through in the book of Acts. All right, with all that said, um, let's look to Acts chapter 8. Could I get someone to read verses 1 through 3 for me? Go for it, brother. All right, so keep in mind, Acts 1.8 is talking about that the gospel, they're going to be witnesses in this whole region. And he mentions Jerusalem, uh, hold on, I'm, I'm not looking at it right now, but Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and other most parts of the world. Did I, did I say that right? All right, so here we have it specifically mentioned. There is persecution in Jerusalem. It is at this point primarily isolated to Jerusalem. And so they're fleeing for their lives. Now, you all have heard the phrase, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. This is generally what it's referring to, that as people are being martyred, the gospel spreads. And we tend to think of this in the sense of when the church is persecuted, people are suffering, and like it weeds out the chaff and the faithful ones remain, and that's how the church grows because you've got faithful people doing faithful stuff. And while I would say that there is a, certainly a sense in which we can say that's true, uh, we can also acknowledge that there are times where, I mean, the Christians are just wiped out in certain areas, right? Like, they just, they just get killed. This is a unique thing, and I shouldn't say not unique. This is a lot of times when we're talking about the spread of the gospel. It's not merely that people go and say, well, let's make sure I can get martyred today. Um, at times, that's what was necessary, and God used it in his plan. But at times, they were like, let's get the heck out of Dodge, because they're going to kill us tomorrow, so let's go. And the gospel spread through that. And brothers and sisters, we see this today uh, when, uh, when our current regime uh, really messed up the pullout from Afghanistan. There were missionaries in Afghanistan whose lives were at risk. Um, and if you follow Heart Cry Missionary Society, they talked about like, hey, we need prayer. We're trying to get some of them out. But they said, you know, we have some. Who they believe God is directing them to stay and preach the gospel. He says, there are others that God, they really believe God is directing them to get out of there for the safety of themselves and their families. And he's like, we support both of them. So I want to bring that to mind, that God was using both here. You have the apostles who stuck around in Jerusalem. They're doing their thing, preaching the gospel. There's a whole bunch of other people that are like, peace out. I'm going to try not to die today. And notice, both were faithful. So heaven forbid we face more persecution than we're facing right now. And the time comes for some to leave, and you have a brother who's like, I'm getting my family out of here, man. And you're like, man, I'm called here. How can you go? I think we need to be here and continue. Can, you, can we make sure that we think ahead to have grace and understanding that God might direct both to happen? Anyway, all that said, notice they're being spread to Judea and Samaria. Uh, of course, it says except the apostles. Um, and notice as, they, as this is happening, Paul is dragging people out of their houses to prison. I want you to think about this. It says he is um, he's entering house after house, dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Like this is this is a terrible, fearful thing. The idea of think about for us a federal agency, uh, no knocking your house and dragging you off to prison for your faith in Christ and or for your obedience to Christ 
over some wicked scheme. Heavy stuff, all right? This is not that far off. I just need to be honest about that. I think we've so often seen this and been like, praise the Lord, we don't have to deal with this. Uh, We are not far from this. Brothers and sisters in Canada dealt with this just in the past couple of years. Um, this, This is happening a lot of places across the world, and more and more it is closer to home. We steal our reserve this, this might have to happen. Anyway, continuing on. So could somebody read verses 4 through 8? I got it. Go for it, man. Oh, okay. So we need to address something here, because what we saw when Jesus was preaching the good news, often he would do signs. Now, we know he didn't heal everybody, not every lame person got healed, but he was going around and he was showing, I'm from God. Of course, he was God, and he made that clear also, uh, but that he's verifying the message as a faithful prophet in the Old Testament would do by, sh- by actually exhibiting a sign. It didn't mean everybody would get healed, but there would be something miraculous to verify this guy is legit. We saw that specifically with Jesus. We saw it some in the apostles, and we see already in the book of Acts, like, that's happening, and it's verifying their message. Now, when the apostles are there and there's a sign, they will very quickly say, Jesus just performed this sign through me, right? They never say, look at me, I'm awesome, right? They're very clear to say, God worked through me. This is in the name of Jesus. This is not me. That's important. This is what's kind of wild. We see this mostly reserved to the apostles until we get to the deacons. And it seems like we saw Stephen was doing some signs and wonders as he's preaching the gospel. And now we see this with Philip as well. It's kind of interesting, kind of wild. It is still limited. I want to point out, it's not every disciple. Like, just not happening for all the disciples. Uh, There was a lot of them that were speaking in tongues, but of course that was a speaking in tongues in such a way that everybody around them could understand in their own language. It wasn't gibberish. And so it was, again, for the sake of the gospel. So this is kind of interesting. We're seeing some signs. We're seeing the gospel being preached. And this is essentially like, well, this is the kingdom of God at work. And people are able to say, this is legit. This Philip guy who is going into Samaria, they're like, oh, wow. Yeah, this is, he's with the kingdom of God. And he's like, the seal is with him. He's showing this. Making sense? Cool. Notice, happening as a result of persecution, they're going to the next city that they're supposed to go. All right, so, um, yeah, we're doing good here. All right, so keeping this in mind, signs are key part of this. And the gospel is being preached. Could someone read verses 1 through, I'm sorry, not 1, verses 9 through 13? Go for it. Uh, through verse 13.
Okay, so we've got to cover a few interesting things here. Thank you very much, Carol. So first of all, we have the fact that this guy, Simon, we need to figure out, is he really doing miracles or is he a really good magician? And I personally lean towards the fact that he's probably a really good magician. However, we know that demons can do some pretty amazing things. And so there are times when a conjurer might very well be able to produce a sign. In fact, when we look at warnings against false prophets in Deuteronomy, one of the things it says is, this guy could do a sign, but if he teaches something that is not in accord with what we know from God's revealed word, uh, he's a false prophet. And in, at least in the Old Testament, they would stone him to death. Conversely, they talk about you could have a guy who is teaching the word accurately, but makes a prophecy that he ends up being wrong about, and then it says, ignore that guy. He's not, he's not a true prophet. So it's interesting. Like God's taking this seriously, and there's a rubric for being able to say, that guy's legit, that guy's not legit, and at least in, in, in the Old Testament, it would be like, that guy is actually a false prophet. Kill him. Um, now, I'm not advocating for that right now, but I'm just going to point out that like God was taking it very seriously. Right. All right. So keeping that in mind, you have this guy, Simon. He's in Samaria. Samaria had kind of this, it's kind of hard to describe. They were kind of like Judaism. They had aspects of it, but it was kind of this branch off. They had some other doctrine that was off. It's tricky. Right. They, they were not what we would call faithful Jews, but they sure looked a whole lot like Jews than most of us who know about Judaism. Right. We would probably like, it seems like a Jew to me, but they believe different things. All right, all that said here, you have this guy, Simon, who's been performing these miracles, calling himself great. Uh, some translations even say he was calling himself the great one, which any of you who watched wrestling in the early 2000s can't not think but Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Uh, that's just, I just knew that was going to happen. It's just, that's what it says in some of these. But anyway, notice, it's a prideful thing, right? There's a prideful thing that he's doing there. He's drawing attention. Now, somebody has shown up who is doing greater signs than him, and he's amazed. It says he believed and is baptized. So this big question comes up, is this guy a legit believer, or is he trying to weasel his way in because he's like, I've just been bested, and now let's see how I can kind of work my way into this thing. The truth is, we do not know Simon's heart. We're about to know something about it, but we don't know, is this guy a guy who is actually believed or not? Um, in any case... The gospel being preached, people are believing, and let me just tell you, whatever signs or whatever wonders that this Simon was doing, he had certainly convinced a lot of people with them before this. All right? Keep that in mind. All right, could someone read verses 14 through 24, just through 24? Go for it, Bob.
your money will perish with you because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. But you have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness, and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Then Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me that none of these things which you have spoken may come upon you. Okay. All right, we need to address two big things here. Two really important things. Uh, some of us have uh, grown up in or been exposed to various forms of Pentecostal theology that believe that the Holy Spirit falling on you is, hap- is something that happens separate from conversion. You guys heard this teaching? Uh, there are different versions of it, but some who would say that, like, well, you're not saved until you speak in tongues. That is flatly false teaching. I'm just going to say that very clearly. That's error. Uh, I would even go so far as to say that's heresy. Uh, not everybody has the gift of tongues. Uh, it's debatable as to whether or not the gift of tongues is for today anyway. All that said, if someone tells you that you're not saved because you haven't spoken in tongues, um, th- they're wrong. Uh, if you have repented of sin and put your trust in Christ, you've committed him as Lord, you are saved. You can't do that apart from the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. Done. Fortunately, I don't think any of us hold to that teaching, but if you did, like, well, we can dig into that. But there are some that would say, well, yeah, you get saved, but then there is a second blessing, the second falling of the Holy Spirit that happens later. And they generally base it on this passage in the book of Acts. I need to point out, this is, as far as we know, in all of church history and in all of scripture, the only time when we see manifestation of the Holy Spirit happening separate from conversion. Why do you think that is? Actually, first, before we answer that, can I just say, one of the rules of biblical interpretation is that we interpret the clearer passage with with the less clear passage, right? We believe in what we call the perspicuity of Scripture. That means, essentially, it's clear, you can understand it. And so when something's like, oh, this is kind of iffy, if we see multiple times in Scripture where it says, you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, repent of sin, trust in him, you'll be saved, and we say, that's the gospel, that's the gospel, that's salvation, couldn't we say that that's pretty clear and that that's salvation? So if we have this one instance where the Holy Spirit's showing up separately, can we just kind of acknowledge, like, this is an anomaly, so we should wonder why it's happening like this. We should acknowledge that it's not the norm. So can somebody tell me what's different about this one and why might we see the Holy Spirit showing up later? Bob? Because it's in Samaria. Yes, and Samaria is? Uh, it's, uh, they're, they're, you know, they Yes. Okay, so let me clarify a couple of things, because I think you're right. It gets kind of tricky as to what the Samaritans actually are, um, because there is a certain sense in which they're, uh, they're culturally and ethnically intermingled with other re- religions, but then there's some debate as to whether or not, like, are they even just a, a completely separate people group? But no matter how you touch it, like, they seem kind of quasi-Hebrew, at least, but not fully. And so this is the first time you can make the argument that the gospel 
is very clearly going to what we would call a Hellenized group of people, or quasi-Hellenized. This is the first time that, like, these are people who are not Jews. Make sense? And so, if every other time that somebody got saved, the apostles were there, and they could, and so you could very clearly say, like, yeah, these, this is, this is the same gospel. Praise the Lord. Now the apostles aren't there except for they're like, hey, these people just got saved. So they send for two apostles who lay hands and are essentially confirming this, and that's when we see manifestation of the Holy Spirit to confirm, guess what? You're looking at it. The Gentiles are believing, and the Holy Spirit is being made clear. This is brothers and sisters they're in. Like, it removes all doubt as to whether or not the Gentiles were believers. Yeah? Was Dan being like a viper in the sand? Yeah. Yeah. Things, you know, that happened in the past. So the idea that the, you know, the gospel is being shared, this is happening in this area, it's, it's, it's yeah. kind of a big deal. Possibly because it's, we get a little fuzzy in some things, but yeah, because possibly this is the area, and probably very likely, was the area of the tribe of Dan. Not Daniel the prophet, but the tribe of Dan. Um, and that he kind of had a bad reputation. And there was some what appeared to be curse associated with it. So the fact that the gospel is getting there is making a big statement. You could say, because they're somewhat Hebrew in their, in their lifestyle and beliefs, that this is almost like step one out of Judaism proper. We're about to see the next step into what is clearly Gentiles. But making sense, though, this is an anomaly, the Holy Spirit showing up later, and it appears to be just a, to clarify that, like, these are your brothers and sisters, and now the apostles themselves can attest to that. Right? Can you imagine if otherwise, if it had been just Peter and John saying, like, I mean, yeah, we heard Philip went and preached the gospel and people believed, cool. Uh, but now they get to be the witnesses and say, yeah, Gentiles are believing and they have the evidence of the Holy Spirit. All that making sense? All right, here's the other thing we have to ad- address, and that is what we call now the sin of simony. You guys ever heard of that? Probably not. Maybe two of us have heard of it. Um, the sin of simony is generally what is it, the name comes from this guy. And it is the belief that you can pay to somehow get the miraculous aspects of God, right? Um, And I will tell you, this is one of the many reasons why I have a big problem with Bethel School of Miraculous Ministry, because they believe that, that you can pay them money and they will teach you how to do miraculous things like speaking in tongues, healing, and so forth. Um, I would say that they're exhibiting this sin there. There are many others that do the same thing. If someone says, come to my class where I will teach you the gift of tongues, I'm going to be like, no, like that's, that's not how it works. And Peter takes it very seriously. He actually says, may your money perish with you. He is not okay with this because what he perceives, I'm, again, I'm assuming here, is that Simon had, well, he's very clear, Simon has nothing of pure motives here. Notice, Simon is not thinking, cool, people believe the gospel, and then the Holy Spirit shows up. What he wants is the ability to magically dispense the Holy Spirit on other people so he can charge them money for it just as he's paying money. This would have been a thing for magicians to do, to pay money, to learn a particular trick. And so he's thinking, like, I just need to learn the trick. Awesome. I'm paying you the money. Let's do this. And Peter's like, nope. Now, 
We go into a whole lot of things here as to whether or not Simon repents or not, because he says, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. I don't know if that's repentance. I mean, maybe. I think normally it's a lot clearer when it's repentance. I'm not optimistic that Simon repented. I hope he did. I mean, I, I always hope for repentance. But all of this said, we see the first time where someone is ready to try to leverage this for something shady. Uh, and here we see it. It is clearly rebuked. Let's keep this principle in mind. Now, some people will say, oh, wait a minute. But if you go away to school to learn to teach, isn't that paying for a spiritual gift? And I always say, like, well, no, first of all, that's not one of the miraculous spiritual gifts. Like, God might gift you to teach. Awesome. Um, like, it, for me to learn how to do better exegesis, that is an educational thing we can do. It's a whole other thing when you are paying for the miracle. Does that make sense? Um, and if preaching was miraculous... If I was somehow doing something that could not be done by any human, uh, and that it was some miracle that God had to do, and it wasn't just that the Holy Spirit gifts and empowers, like that's a whole different thing. Are we clear on that? I recognize that there's a little bit of debate on that. Anyway, continuing on. All right, so. All right, verse 25, it says, Now when they testified and spoke the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of Samaritans. Cool. Notice. Every time the gospel is being preached. Always. All right, so let's read this last little section. Could I get somebody to read verse 26 through 32? Go for it, brother. Can you go ahead and do 33 too? I'm sorry. All right. Thank you, brother. So let's let's pay some attention here. Just some background. First of all, Ethiopian eunuch. Now, in case it comes up, uh, generally we know what a eunuch is, right? Uh, sometimes we think the term could have been used to refer to someone who just was a trusted person but probably this guy was a eunuch, which meant, interestingly enough, uh, he wouldn't have been able to go into certain parts of the temple. Not to mention, it's this guy's, this guy's a Gentile, yet seems to be a God-fearing Gentile. It is, he appears to be worshiping Israel's God, believing him to be the true God, and here he has got the prophet Isaiah, and he's reading aloud. Now, at that time, reading aloud was a 
common thing. It probably should be more common than it is now. Uh, from an educational perspective, I'll say, when you read, you're only getting it one way, but when you read out loud, you actually get it three ways. You're reading it with your eyes, you're saying it with your mouth, you're hearing it. Like, there's something that's actually, from an educational perspective, very powerful that's happening there. I recommend reading out loud for learning. Um, that's coming from me as a classical Christian school teacher. Uh, but beyond that, uh, he's reading out loud and allows Philip to hear. The Holy Spirit leads Philip to go over there, and he's like, do you understand what you're reading? And he's like, I, I need somebody to explain this to me. Uh, this is clearly a person of authority, a person of maybe some means, and here he is, a very clear Gentile. Now, what did Jesus say? Jerusalem, uh, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world, right? You could argue, we, we've covered the first three pretty doggone well, right? Now we have this guy is clearly a Gentile Gentile, all right? And, um, and here he's reading this, what is clearly a messianic prophecy about Jesus and his atoning death. And he's asking for clarification on it from Philip, who God has sovereignly placed there right at that time. Could I... No, we're ahead of ourselves. We'll just keep going here. All right, I'm going to read this last section. It says, and the, uh, and the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask, does the prophet say this? About himself or someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth. By the way, that phrase, opened his mouth, is kind of a phrase that Luke uses a lot to kind of indicate somebody's about to say something special here. Um, it says, And beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. Uh, I mean, this is just pretty much sounds like teleporting. Um, it says, And the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself in Azotus, and, he, uh, as, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. All right, so lots of things here. First of all, we believe, as far as we understand, Philip and Stephen both would have been Hellenized Jews, which would have meant they would have been Greek-speaking um, and probably had some cultural things that were Greek. Obviously, they were faithful Jews as well, but they were, they were Hellenized. Interestingly enough, these are the guys that seem to be sent to the Hellenized culture. Caesarea is very dominant; it was dominated by a Greek-speaking culture, and so here, as the gospel is going to the Gentiles, they're sending out the Hellenized Jews. Seems to be working really well. Uh, some cool things here, though. We see this Ethiopian eunuch read the gospel is explained to him using the Old Testament, which we see many times. He believes and is baptized, and then God says, "You're done here, Philip. We're taking you somewhere else to preach the gospel." I just think it's really cool. All right? If I can point out something else that is often forgotten. Man, when we think of Christianity from a cultural perspective, we have a tendency to think of, like, Europe, right? We think of, I mean, we think of it taking over in England. We think, of course, sadly, we think of, like, Rome persecuting and then being taken over. Like, we think of kind of the Western Anglo world Right? But that's, that's not been historically how the gospel spread. Totally. Like, praise the Lord. I mean, yes, it has historically. But can I tell you, some of the greatest theologians of the first few centuries were coming out of Africa. You all have heard me mention Athanasius of Alexandria. Like, would have been a, just a, an African guy. 
possibly we think that most of the gospel work that was happening there in that part of Africa, we don't really know who to trace it back to, but probably this guy. We don't know. But to think of, like, this guy is important for some reason. Like, doesn't this seem like kind of an anomaly? You know, we're following all these other guys, and like, he's taking a walk, sees this guy, gets teleported out. We don't see teleporting very much in Scripture. I mean, like, it seems that God was just, you've got to get the gospel to that guy on that chariot at that time. You need to come across this water at this time. He needs to be reading that verse at this exact time. And you need to hear him and you need to explain it to him. And all those things had to come together in God's perfect sovereignty as he has declared it in his decree from before the foundation of the earth. And because of that, brothers and sisters, there's a whole rich theology tradition that, I mean, I'm going to be in a PhD class in a couple of weeks where we're going to be studying Athanasius of Alexandria who probably traced his faith back to this guy. Guys, God is sovereign. He's going to get his gospel where he wants it to go and we should praise him for it. Um, and that's, that's going to be, continue to be the theme of the book of Acts. God's going to get the gospel where he wants it to go. So if I, are you guys, maybe at times, I get discouraged when I see what's happening culturally right now. I get really frustrated, and at times I'm, I, I get my crazy hat on, and I just feel like, let's, let's go build a bunker. Let's, you know, whatever. Let's get some punji pits for when the tax agents come, right? Like, you get this, like, what's going to happen? But historically, brothers and sisters, there's been times where we've had to use force to protect ourselves, yeah? But historically... The gospel was preached. God is always in charge of that. Don't ever neglect that. Just preach the gospel. When we're persecuted, preach the gospel. When you're persecuted, go where you need to go to get safe if necessary and preach the gospel there. While you're here and it's still safe, preach the gospel here. Because the way that the world was won was not through anything other than faithful prayer, faithful proclamation of the gospel. That's what we got to do. So all that said, I'm going to pray and then who's on for gospel proclamation today? All right, cool, John. All right, Father God, you are good. Uh, as we're gonna, uh, we've got just a couple of more things to do here. Uh, Lord, we just want to praise you that I think if, if you are sovereign over when some Ethiopian on a chariot uh, passes by uh, a deacon who's fleeing for his life, and they get just right to the water at the right time and just right to the right passage at the right time, then Lord, you're sovereign over even us being here today. You're sovereign over everyone we run into. So we, may we just faithfully proclaim the gospel. Give us those opportunities. May we speak your good news. And may we, Lord, may we see a harvest. In Christ's name, amen.